Hello, my name is Ben Jenkins and welcome to another episode of the New Grad Radio Podcast, the podcast following the experiences of a new graduate nurse starting into the intensive care unit. So something that's pretty exciting about the intensive care unit is just how much information we collect on each and every one of our patients. We have so many different pieces of machinery um, and ways in which we collect at times second by second information of, of each and every one of our patients. And it's when we don't have all of those pieces of equipment that we routinely use day after day, uh, like I had with a patient a few days ago, which is what I want to talk about today. I've noticed that you can you can become quite reliant on these things and it's not until that they're stripped away is that you start to realise that. So in today's episode, I'm going to be breaking down a few of the pieces of equipment that I will use day to day on the vast majority of patients and, and just how they collect data and what I use them for. Um, and then I'll share this experience that I had the other day to sort of show that you always need to be using your fundamental nursing and assessment skills uh, because they will never ever go away and you'll always be using them forever. So to start with, let me break down a few of the pieces of equipment that we use and, and just in the ways in which we collect information. So let's start with the basics. So each patient is going to be having continuous ECG monitoring. Um, we're looking mostly at lead two, and this is projected up onto the monitor screen. It's not only am I able to see the, the trace of the waveform, but this is also how we're picking up heart rate. Next, the patient's gonna be having a, an oxygen saturations probe, um, which is obviously measuring O2 sats. That number is projected up onto the monitor screen. Um, and we're also seeing, according to that, the waveform of the O2 trace as well. It should be nice and rounded and matching the pulse rate. Next, uh, the vast majority of patients are going to be having an indwelling catheter. Um, so an IDC is measuring the urine output of the patient, which is exceptionally important in ICU because it's seeing how well the body is being perfused and the organs are being perfused and just how well the kidneys are able to produce urine. Uh, and it depends on the make of the IDC, but the vast majority of them have a probe, um, which is how it's we're able to measure real-time temperature as well, which will be projected up onto the screen. Now, this is when we start to get into a bit more specifics of the intensive care unit. Whether inserted down an ED or in the uh, bed space of the intensive care unit, the vast majority of patients admitted to ICU will have an arterial line. Arterial lines measure real-time blood pressure. This is really important, especially for very sick people being admitted pretty rapidly to ICU. A lot of these patients can be hemodynamically unstable, meaning that we need to be uh, increasing their, their blood pressure to meet the demands of their body. Now, whether this be initially via uh, rapid infusion of fluid um, or other blood, blood products, uh, or also being, and or being able to use some highly toxic medications such as vasopressors and inotropes, to be increasing blood pressure to meet the demands of their body. Uh, another use of an ABG, which can often be the reason why ABG stay in for a long time or stay in for a period of time, is it provides a port uh, into the patient's artery. Now this is important because we're able to draw blood from these ports. Um, so whether it be via um, blood tests per se, um, which we send down to uh, pathology to be able to be analysed, uh, which provides a lot of different data depending on what test that we're running. Um, but also, um, as nurses, we're able to pull arterial blood gases. So we 
put in a special type of ABG syringe, we go over to a machine and it analyzes the data and it spits out some information for us, which we can then use to titrate to make the demands of the patient. Um, so whether it be oxygenation status, so we're able to see uh, the patient's pH, oxygen, carbon dioxide, bicarbonate. Uh, we're able to see electrolyte issues such as potassium, sodium, uh, calcium, and then also looking at things like lactate, glucose. So it's providing a wealth of information for us and we're able to titrate a few of the things. So whether we see that the patient's starting to become more acidotic, um, we're able to uh, play around uh, with the ventilator to be able to, to meet the body's needs or whether we see someone has an electrolyte disturbance uh, and there's particular protocols that we can use to increase uh, things like uh, uh, potassium for example we can replace that so that's that's one of the things that we use in ICU. Next a lot of the patients that we have as well will have a central line so central lines, uh, whether inserted up near the neck in the internal jugular or the subclavian veins, or down in the groin through the femoral vein, this is how we're able to, um, it provides a few different ports of access to deliver medications through. Um, so whether I said before about rapidly giving some fluid through, you're able to push very quickly a large amount of fluid through uh, central line access. Um, also, it provides other ports to be giving some pretty toxic medications through as well, whether it be the vasopressors and inotropes I said before, or a wealth of other different um, medications can be given through these uh, central line ports. Um, also, if it's inserted up near the internal jugular or subclavian, it's sitting right over the top of that right atrium, which is how we're able to measure uh, central venous pressures as well. Uh, or CVPs as we like to call it. And this can be a way in which we're measuring um, fluid status as well. Now the vast majority of patients that's admitted to the ICU that I particularly work in are going to be mechanically ventilated. Um, so whether it's on a type of ventilation, um, so like a different mode that's doing all of the work for the patient, such as pressure control or volume control, or whether the patient's doing the vast majority of the work themselves, such as pressure support, um, either way, they're attached to a ventilator and because they're attached to the ventilator, we're able to see a lot of the information when it comes to their ventilatory status. So we're able to see in real time just how big the patient's breaths are, how many breaths per minute that they're taking, what are the pressures that's in their lungs at the moment, and it also provides a backup in case they stop breathing uh, to be able to ventilate the take back over that work for you. So. And with all of this information as well, I set particular parameters, so alarm parameters on the ventilator to alarm me if, for example, the patient's starting to breathe up over the top of the rate that I've set, or if their tidal volumes are a bit too low, or their minute ventilation is not adequate. Um, so I'm able to set alarms to be able to tell me when something's different. So now that I've talked to you about a few of the pieces of equipment that we use to collect information from the patient, often in real time, let me talk to you about an experience I had the other night for which I didn't have a lot of these luxuries, for which I had to rely upon my nursing skills to get me through. So the patient that I had had just come off a surgery to the head, meaning that I have to continuously keep waking the patient um, during my night shift to be assessing their neurology uh, and looking at their pupils. 
Um, the patient had recently lost arterial line access. Um, it had clotted over and they needed to remove it. And that's no big deal. I can still keep using um, non-invasive blood pressure, non-invasive blood pressure cuff readings. Um, but when it comes to collecting blood, it means I'm going to have to be venipuncturing the patient. Um, the patient also did not have central line access, um, which you'll find out in a second why that's not ideal. Um, and yeah, they're still intubated and ventilated. Uh, they had been um, sedated, they had been para paralyzed during the surgery, but as I've come back to ICU, um, that had all worn off, the paralysis I should say, but they're still getting sedated. Um, and I'll tell you why in a second as well. So as I've turned out, the, the patient uh, is GCS 13 to 15. They're looking at me, they know exactly what's going on. Uh, but the problem with this patient is that they're highly, highly tube intolerant. Um, so you could ask yourself, could we just extubate the patient now? But the medical decision was to know we need to keep this patient ventilated overnight and we'll remove, we'll look at removing it in the morning. So that's awesome. I've got my plan. I know what I'm doing. Um, the problem when you've got someone that's cough, cough, coughing on, a, on an endotracheal tube is that the more that they're coughing, number one is it's obviously distressing to the patient. But number two it'll increase the amount of swelling around the airways. Um, now, one of the assessments that you do prior to extubating a patient is to deflate the cuff um, and to be seeing if they have what's called a cuff leak. Uh, it means that there's enough space around the endotracheal tube for air to escape, and you'll hear this gurgling sound. Now, the problem when you've got airway swelling is that you will no longer have, an air, you'll no longer have a cuff leak. Uh, and that means that it's unsafe to be removing that endotracheal tube. So I needed to ensure that if we're going to get this tube out for this patient in the morning, I can't have her coughing too much. So what we do about that is we increase sedation. Um, now, as it turns out for this patient, normally when you increase sedation, it's no big deal. I can be looking at my arterial, uh, arterial line waveform and I'm able to measure real-time blood pressure to see if I'm going a bit too far. Now... As it turns out, this patient was, uh, didn't like propovol too much <laughs> and um, had to try to really find a sweet spot between uh, having her awake and coughing on the tube and having her blood pressure drop to fairly dangerous levels that's not providing her body what she needs. So I was sort of caught in a balance. Um, so instead of, uh, and then so, okay, I've set that scene up for a bit. Let's also look at one of the first things we do when we're trying to increase blood pressure is we'll often fluid challenge the patient. So the doctor had ordered, look, can we just give a 500 mil fluid bolus? Now normally through central line access, we're able to provide 500 mils within a matter of minutes. You can bang it in pretty quickly. And you're able to see, is this patient fluid responsive? But... Um, and also, uh, you can also um, start, and if they're not, you can then start medications such as uh, some, some vasopressors such as noradrenaline, uh, just a touch of it to sort of keep that blood pressure in a decent, in a decent level. Um, but in this case, when you've got uh, peripheral line access, so uh, cubital fossas, um, you're not able to bang a large amount of fluid in uh, very quickly. So... Every time I try to <laughs> keep it high enough I'm get, that I'm going to get it through in a decent amount of time, um, it kept saying it's, 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 it's going to be inadequate. It's just not going to be feasible. So a 500ml fluid bolus for me was going to take over an hour. 
which is not ideal. Um, and also, when you don't keep the patient sedated enough, the patient is still able to freely move their arms around, and every time the patient bends their arm, it's gonna kink off, uh, which means I'm no longer getting any medications through the peripheral line access. So that's not ideal either. So I had to, I can't have the patient cough, cough, coughing, so I have to keep the sedation enough that she's comfortable. But I can't go too much, otherwise the blood pressure is not good enough. So let's start using my assessment skills. So number one, How's the patient's skin? Do they look warm, pink, and well perfused? Do the peripheries feel warm? Because one of the first things that the patient's blood, so one thing that the patient's skin is going to do um, is the, the blood is gonna start being shunted back to the vital organs. Um, so, those, so the heart and the brain is gonna be perfused. Um, so the patient's peripheries will start to feel cool and they'll start to look pale. So in this case, I'm really keeping an eye to make sure that they're still uh, warm to the touch uh, and not gonna be too peripherally cool and start shutting down. Next, I'm gonna start feeling. So do I, am I still able to feel distal pulses? Because uh, again, if we're not getting enough perfusion to the, to the, to the feet and to the, to the hands, it means that we don't have an adequate blood pressure. Um, so, and then, so I'm still using my non-invasive cuff, I'm still seeing it go up and down, but at the end of the day, that can't substitute for what I can see as a clinician. Do I still feel it? Do I, and what, how does it look and appear to me? So it was, uh, it was interesting because I guess as a whole, the vast majority of patients I've had so far over the last seven and a half, bordering eight months now of my grad year in ICU, I have all of the luxuries of these pieces of equipment. But this was the first proper time that I didn't. And so I had to rely on my assessment skills. Um, and I remember like, as, I, as I applied for ICU and as I've talked to a lot of ICU people, they, they always say, don't treat the, the numbers so per se uh, up on the screen. Um, don't treat the machines, treat the patient. Uh, and that is the highlight of what I had to do the other night. Like, um, Yes, the, I'm still having to keep within certain parameters. That's of course, so you always have to do that. But what is my clinical judgment telling me? Um, and how am I able to use my skills accordingly? Um, so anyway, it was, uh, it, I just noticed and I kept reflecting in my head even as I'm doing it that I had to remain hyper-vigilant for this patient all night. Um, and as it turns out, it, it all worked out well for my shift. I was able to get through it, but it was tough. So... Anyway, guys, that's, I guess that's a takeaway lesson for, for anyone in any area of nursing or pre-hospital care is it's treat the person, not the machines. Um, and that when you don't have all these machines, it's, it really is important to be using your, your clinical judgment and your assessment skills because no matter where you're working, they will always be used and come in handy. So anyway, guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode and this little insight into this experience I had the other night. Um, there's plenty more episodes to come and I can't wait to talk to you next time.